Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. I'm joined as usual by my colleagues Claire Fox and David Bowden to review the week's news. And the week's news generally starts with the EU referendum debate uh, in the past few weeks. So I wonder what you make of developments uh, in, the, in the past week or two. I mean, the media discussion of it has been all too often about Boris Johnson versus David Cameron. But there's actually been some quite interesting developments on the left in terms of their response and from left-wing sort of commentators and critics? Well, I think that it has been of some interest to those of us, you know, come from the left to notice that people who have erstwhile been very critical of the EU and where they could have actually given a real lead in terms of Brexit campaign and given a completely different flavour to this debate have actually lined up to come out as, yes, of course the EU is anti-democratic, anti-the demos, got absolutely nothing going for it, but we should stay in. Um, And the uh, best example, of course, was the uh, Paul Mason article in The Guardian, which was, I'm for Brexit, but not now, which was a kind of pathetic enunciation of a kind of nervousness on the left, and that's been backed up by uh, Owen Jones. One of the things that's really distressing about the debate is actually coming from the left has been... um, arguments used about why Brexit would be dangerous now is because of the threat of right-wing populism and obviously Austria with the near election of somebody from the far right which kind of turned everyone into kind of like had a tailspin throughout Europe this there was potentially going to be a far right president and then when you actually unravel the debate and in fact uh, some of these writers uh, on the left have made this very explicit what they actually say is if you let popular democracy happen without some barriers, then the people will behave like an irrational right-wing mob, i.e. they use anti-democratic arguments for staying in the EU, which they argue is anti-democratic. And I can't see the difference between that argument and uh, Juncker, who made an extraordinary comment during the week, which was basically to say that the EU would not allow popular right-wing elections to take place that if in fact the Austrians had voted which they nearly did uh, for for a a right-wing president that the EU would not recognize them and that actually the EU would do everything in its power to stop groups like and it said this uh, he said this uh, UKIP gaining any kind of position of power in their nation states and I think that's an extraordinary thing for the head of the EU to say, but then that's why I'm anti-EU, because we know that they hate the people and despise them and are set up against popular democracy. Shocking, then, that the left, who is supposedly on the side of the people, echo that with even more hysterical panics about fascists on the rise and, oh, my God, how are we going to stop these people and so on and so forth. And I think that it's a a real betrayal of uh, uh, popular sovereignty. Yeah, it's particularly galling when you recall the reasons why we're having this referendum which um, because of the sort of fixation on the on the David Cameron um, thing can sort of make it um, seem and people were telling it as a story as if it, this is some kind of elitist plot they all secretly want us out of the EU because they want to destroy workers protections or any number of different claims and it kind of ignores the reasons why it is which is that there was um, after the attempt to you know 
you know, give constitutional powers to the EU with the EU constitution, which failed in France and Netherlands, two of the most Europhile countries. Um, they then created a thing called the Lisbon Treaty, which gave the same powers, but you didn't have to put it onto a vote for. And at the time, Cameron promised that we would have a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. It came too late uh, when he seized the power to stop that process. But ultimately, he had made a, a promise that this was going to be done, and it has been held to it by an electorate um, of UKIP and Conservative voters. So this referendum has been given you know, largely against the will of certainly the European elites and against the will of the of the British government, and they're doing everything in their power to prevent that from happening. And the fact that people don't seem to be taking that very seriously in this campaign, that actually this is a real democratic moment. And the thing about democratic moments across the board is that they're frightening. If you're reclaiming democracy, then that may mean that things people can do things um, that you didn't like uh, um, before. You know, that can make you a little bit nervous, but that's what the kind of deal is. And it's quite frightening then to see people who are nominally, and having seen uh, what happens you know, when the EU's political priorities shift in Greece, where suddenly it goes from bestowing workers' rights and protections and benefits and creating a social Europe to slashing that to the bone uh, in the interests of a, uh, uh, maintaining financial stability. You know, they, they still somehow kid themselves that the, uh, you know, the EU is ultimately going to fix these problems of democracy later on the board. That's definitely there in the kind of uh, the Owen Jones and kind of Paul Mason stuff, where it is that you know we can rebuild this European demos. To which you might think, well, why would the why would anyone involved in European politics even be concerned about that? Because at the moment um, that you're being offered a choice uh, to decide the democratic future of the country and to regain powers, and it's been rejected by people who are claiming that they want to bring about significant changes in how society is governed. So it's very confused on that level. Yeah, I mean the uh, the, the referendum. Uh, question is very interesting because of New Labour promised us a referendum on the Constitution, and then when it became the Lisbon Treaty, suddenly decided that that wasn't uh, necessary. Um, so it is a bit ridiculous just to claim that this is purely down to a sort of infighting with the Tory Party or the uh, the question of UKIP and the flip flopping of some people. I mean, Owen Jones is the is the, the best example going from last year to demanding that we have you know we we leave the EU to suddenly falling under the spell of Yanis uh, Varoufakis and and suddenly accepting this delusion that somehow the EU is reformable. You know, it's it's, um, it's sort of fantasy politics, and uh, as as you said, you know, utterly undemocratic. Just following on from what you just said about Owen Jones, I mean, I do think that Paul Mason and others like him do actually know that the EU is unreformable, but they're sort of somehow hiding behind this and saying this is not of the time of our choosing and I think it's worth noting that history is never of the time of our choosing and that if you're given an opportunity to do something strike a blow for democracy you don't sort of go sorry we're not ready yet we're not mature enough yet there's too many problems now the world will never change that way but I also wanted to say something about the postures around this idea that voting out is somehow some sort of right-wing neocon uh, or, you know, sort of some somehow sinister presentation. I mean, I think it is worth repeating, other people have said it before me, that the forces who are arguing for us to stay in the EU are the establishment. I mean, lined up from army colonels uh, through to um, the uh, whole of the co- big corporates, everybody in the establishment. And when people say, well, everyone in the establishment, you know, when the Remainers say, look, everyone's on our side... I think that we should bear in mind that, yes, the establishment absolutely 
believe in this EU club. So you would imagine that those on the left might be a little bit sceptical instead of going, oh, God, yeah, but on the other side, there's UKIP. I mean, they're effectively lining up with the forces that have very little interest in ever allowing the people to have a say in anything. And the idea that that is somehow better for the workers is just preposterous. I think it's worth saying that there's been a little bit more wiggle room, I feel, on different voices emerging, uh, which I've really been glad to see. Uh, whenever you're listening to this, do check out the uh, Question Time. I don't often rec- recommend Question Time on the BBC, but last night's Question Time was really interesting because a combination of uh, Steve Hilton, who's recently, uh, as Cameron's advisor, come out as Brexit, Dreda uh, Say Mitchell, who's a black uh, woman writer, who, is, as she says herself, as a black woman, unusually finds herself in a peculiar set of allies as a Brexit person. And David Davis, the three of them, between them, gave some really excellent and nuanced and complicated and interesting answers in relation to the EU in terms of things like immigration, not just being straightforwardly scaremongering, uh, raising the fact that possibly it was not a left-right issue, raising the, the all of uh, the interesting art arguments around how anti-democratic the EU is. And I'm just really glad that there's just a little few more voices coming out that shows that it's not it's just too narrow and simplistic to reduce it to a kind of black and white issue and Steve Hilton emphasized that this is complicated he said it's complicated and he said it's complicated in the sense that we should at least be prepared to have nuanced arguments that both remain and brexit campaigners however try and keep things simplistic because they believe that the public are not capable of getting anything that goes beyond the superficial. And my final thought on that was the most grating, insulting uh, piece of advertising that came from Remain this week was their attempt to get the youth vote out with that rather ill-judged but nonetheless typical advert created where they kind of had techno music with a whole load of phrases like, working, making, playing, raving, voting. And this was all without the G in a kind of youth speak, the most crass attempt at talking. And it's been rightly ridiculed by young people who said, for God's sake, we are capable of speaking English. Don't all drop our Gs. And we might be more interested than roaming or raving. We might actually want to know what's at stake in this uh, in this referendum and I think that we should as the Institute of Ideas not be frightened of raising some of the complicated arguments um, and not insult young people by assuming that if we kind of pander to their to their leisure interests that that would be enough to get them to vote uh, one way or another. Yeah and what's really striking when you think about you know the kind of one of the big stories that you know everyone sort of seems to be um, interested in discussing outside of the referendum which is that you know sort of look at you know what's happening to to young people and university campuses with the kind of obsession with kind of safe spaces and this kind of sort of purging that you don't have to uh, ever have to kind of deal with an idea that offends you or makes it difficult and wondering where that comes from I mean you only have to look at the the tenor of this um, election campaign which is full of people saying that yes there may be an important ideal of democracy that I may stand for but some people whose views I don't like um, agree with me on this so therefore I have to change my opinion I can't possibly be um, siding with an important vote for democracy because people will think I'm a UKIP racist and those people are awful they need to be shunted out and that kind of 
actually feeds into the points around Austria at the moment because actually this is one of the big elements that's deployed in its favour is actually a kind of a vote for Brexit, a vote for weakening of the European Union is a kind of sucker to the far right who are on kind of, you know, on the rampage across um, Europe who nearly kind of got into power in Austria, which for, you know, for you know, nearly half a century has probably been one of the most stable, quiet, you know, dem- democratic systems in Europe that suddenly weakened. But actually, when you look across it, when you stop trying to t- treat this kind of trend as a kind of simple narrative of a European uh, demos being kind of at the risk of a European far right, actually, you start to realise that many of these you know, parties who are breaking through in many different countries aren't straightforwardly far right. Not even, you know, actually, some of them are, are left in some ways. A lot of them are populist movements that are coming on. The one thing they have in common is that they are raging against a, a, a technocratic elite in Brussels, really, about the European Union, because people feel as if their entire uh, concept of national identity, the the, you know, the democracy that they buy into, is being, they don't have any control over it, because every single time they want to vote on any kind of major issue, they get told you can't do that, it's a European issue. So actually, the more and more people talk up this kind of far-right minister's way of defending the EU, actually is a kind of is actually a rejection of any conception of a kind of European demos who might have a bunch of concerns in their own um, countries. And of course ends up reinforcing the same structure which is perhaps driving forward the kind of the nastier elements who can continue to talk about conspiracies of the elites and you can continually talk about the way in which their you know kind of national identity and democracy has been trampled. Because it is. So that's, you know, that is a kind of a reminder that this is a very important vote. And at the moment, the UK is the only country that is able in a position to really reject that consensus and to maybe change something. Um, and nobody wants to um, uh, sort of seize control of that. Actually, frighteningly, I don't think many people in Vote Leave seem to want to, to seize that moment either. And you know, this has been a very badly run um, campaign um, from Vote Leave, which when you think about it, isn't even really representative of you know, of the kind of UKIP, you know, that leave the EU was more kind of grassroots representative of people who have voted for years and years because they wanted um, to get more of a, a vote on these things. And it's now been run by a kind of Conservative Party elite, some of whom, like Boris Johnson, don't seem to be a little bit uncertain about whether they want to leave the EU at all. Um, and that isn't adding up to a very uh, inspiring campaign all round. Uh, well, f- less than four weeks to go. We will soon know the fate of Britain's membership of the EU. Moving on, uh, I suppose uh, the other big story in the UK this week has been uh, the decision by North Yorkshire Council to uh, allow fracking. There hasn't been any fracking for a few years now, and it, uh, after there were some very, very small earth tremors uh, as a result of some fracking in uh, Lancashire. Um, so what do we make of this? Is this the start of things opening up for fracking in the UK? Um, well, it's unusual for me to be in a position, especially somebody who writes for the MJ, the magazine for local councils, to be congratulating a council. But I have to say that they did well to make this vote because there's been quite a lot of opposition locally. When I've made this point, people have actually, interestingly, as we've been just talking about popular democracy, said, oh, you're siding with the elite against the locals or with the popular mandate. But actually what's interesting is is that the councillors who were elected were acting on their popular mandate as against advocates and activists who hate fracking. And when I've indulged in some social media debate with these people, <laughs> quite a lot in fact, it's been, you know, to a man, stroke woman, yes, but what about nature? 
you know, we shouldn't interfere with the earth. We shouldn't, or a kind of scaremongering about poisoned water, cyanide, deaths on the horizon. I mean, it's kind of like real being Armageddon stuff. So I'm very excited about the fact that a council has been brave enough to take a decision to, but then you think, what? What have they decided to do? Why? It shows this sort of stultifying atmosphere around the British manufacturing scene that I can be excited about one decision to do fracking, which is, you know, just a new piece of engineering, a possibility of an innovative approach to uh, energy. It should be just a commoner garden thing. We should just have been doing it for ages. It's not going to solve all of the energy uh, challenges that this country has. But, you know, it will potentially allow us to have a cheaper and uh, more sustainable source of energy. It can, of course, therefore lead to a, a boost to economic development. And I don't want to be crass about it, it can create jobs, but you know, there'll be some jobs created. But anyway, we just need to... Uh, do as much as possible uh, in terms of imaginative, different ways of sourcing energy. And I'm excited. I hope it's the start of many different uh, innovative engineering solutions to some of the problems of making sure that Britain becomes a more productive, you know, high-tech uh, manufacturing uh, society. Yeah, well, I mean, the jobs point is actually relatively important in this one, only on in as much as... Um, you know, the kind of narrative that has been built is, again, southern kind of Tories wanting to tear apart northern England, um, you know, for the creation of these you know, kind of energy supplies. Um, and to just, you know, they want to sort of create this kind of sort of industry here, which when you sort of think actually, you know, the north is crying out for industries rather than sort of seeing that as a potential opportunity and have a rational debate about the, the possibilities of these benefits. There is this kind of sort of perception that there is a very callous and cavalier attitude um, towards the deployment of these things, which is nothing further from the truth. And you remind yourself that, you know, this week it's you know, been an announcement for the, you know, for the third decade running that the impacts of GM crops um, have generally proven to be entirely positive. And, you know, again, you remember the narrative that was built around GM crops is that this was big, evil corporates, um, you know, playing with nature um, and potentially you know, risking us all and kind of cheered um, on by kind of weak governments. And actually, in reality, when we look at the sort of process that has gone on through that, it's actually been handled quite sensibly kind of at every single uh, sort of stage of how it's been in- introduced. And actually kind of you sort of feel that a um, Monsanto, which are not a company that I often want to a, a defend very often, actually have had, you feel like they've been sort of a bit sort of slandered in the, in the kind of public eye over this, that actually, um, you know, when you look at how they've... A, um, that, you know they've kind of sort of followed through the uh, making sure that GM crops are safe, which brings about potentially exciting new developments. The one obstacle of that at the moment is is largely actually EU hostility towards it because there are certain countries and groups within the EU which you know either reject it on ideological grounds or are concerned about their own uh, interests. And I don't know what the democratic mechanism is now to try and challenge that. I don't know what how I would. Um, try to have a discussion at what member, uh, what level of the European uh, movement. I don't know if I can put pressure on my own government to try and you know see what I think would be a positive change um, going about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that environmentalism in general and uh, the EU in particular has been a real dead weight on the, on these kinds of things. Um, as you say, GM crops is the. the, the biggest example but i think that the the, the sort of protests against fracking uh, although 
heavily influenced by some of the scare story movies coming out of America. It's just it's just becomes this focus for a whole bunch of different weird and wonderful kind of concerns about the future. Whether it's na- you know we're interfering with nature, was obviously the, the, the progress of humanity depends on interfering with nature, or whether it's uh, you know they're coming in and the things are being imposed on us from without, which doesn't seem to me to be the case at all. In fact, a lot, the, a lot of these activists are kind of bussing in from all over the place to protest against this, and you know, their, their concerns are you know often more about you know any kind of fossil fuel rather than about the safety of uh, of this particular technology. I think it's, uh, looking at the US example, it seems that this is, a, this is a very important way in which we can get cheap and reliable, or at least cheaper and reliable, uh, energy sources into the future. And with, you know, with our previous energy resources out in the North Sea and whatever running out fast, I think this should be welcomed as a kind of setting a, um, a precedent for hopefully lots more of this stuff in the future. Another big story this week was a bit of a breakout of of public health wars. The National Obesity Forum produced a report saying that fat isn't bad for you after all, that the advice that we've been given to eat low-fat diets uh, has been misguided, and that we should be encouraged to eat more fat to get slim. And obviously there's been a complete backlash against that by sort of the mainstream public health uh, researchers saying this is terrible advice and utterly dangerous and badly sourced and uh, researched and it's 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 quite striking that um you know that this these kind of wars are sort of breaking out now around uh, both about diet and about e-cigarettes any thoughts on that well um this is not a political point it's it's a shopper point um but i i just wanted to make it you know i kind of buy my low-fat margarine and i kind of I suppose, despite my anti-nanny statism and my cynicism about public health, I'm, like everybody else as an individual, prone to look at the kind of how much salt, sugar, fat things have when I'm buying things, right? And it's just got to the point, I just noticed, you know, I just uh, noticed when I was in the supermarket uh, yesterday, uh, some people kind of staring at labels, and, and one of one of the uh, the lads said, I don't know why you're bothering. It's all nonsense, isn't it? They're making it up. Have you not seen? I'm buying butter. I'm not buying that low-fat nonsense. And I and I, what I thought was, well, actually, even though I'm anti-nanny state, I wouldn't mind a little bit of reliable information. You know, I would like to know, having sat through and listened to all this endless talk about you know what makes you fat or not or what's threatening your life or not i wouldn't mind actually having a bit of objective information which i might ignore because i often do things that are bad for me but at the moment what's just happened this week in terms of these public health wars what will happen is in every supermarket people will just become more and more cynical about information and it serves them right because actually too often public health has abused uh, scientific evidence use scaremongering and speculation and forecasting to kind of try and get us to change our behaviour and in its wake has discredited the very idea of factual information about what might be good for your health in terms of what you eat or what you don't eat. As somebody who's also just taken up e-cigs, next time we have a podcast we'll see how I'm getting on but nonetheless I'm, 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 you know, I'm trying. I also think that that's a perfect example and I know that that uh, we had a very good discussion on this at the Battle of Ideas uh, uh, last year which you should look up the podcast on because e-cigs should be a 
salvation and a great thing to be welcomed to those people who for a long time have been telling us that smoking tobacco is it, it, you know should be curtailed and we need to get more and more people to stop smoking and it is extraordinary to me that still despite that that there is an internal war in the public health world of people who will not welcome e-cigarettes as an alternative to tobacco because they just basically cannot bear to have anyone do anything that even apes smoking and are so determined to tell us how to live our lives and it just shows you how counterproductive and anti our health a lot of these initiatives are yeah i mean what i always think about a lot of the the discussion around kind of public health and nutrition is that you know i you know i think everyone knows sort of someone who is always obsessed with the latest fatty diet of some kind whether it's a you know kind of whether they're eating clean um, or you're on, you know, they're cussing out this, they're cussing out that. I knew, and I know many people who are, um, you know, cussing out the carbs. Um, but you know, if I was to sit there and, and you know, from in many cases, it seems to be work quite well for them. But then on the back of that, for me to sit there and say, well, actually, the big menace we need to tackle now in society is carbohydrate, and that there is, you know, a big carbohydrate. Lots of well-funded corporates who are uh, packing their foods full of carbohydrate, and we need to tax this, and we need to give all of, you know today's school students from the age of four onwards lessons in the evils of carbohydrate you probably would say do you want to calm down a little bit why don't we try to do a little bit more kind of research before we start giving people this information we actually don't know what the impacts of that um will be and that would be a sensible reaction um but in most other kind of instances we're more than happy to buy into certain kind of fads and trends and to say we should start engineering society around it rather than trying to make offer people slightly informed decisions based around what it is that we we know and allow people to make choices based around their own health we kind of impose a kind of an ideal of what we want people's healthy diets to be and that is ever-changing because food production ever changes our knowledge of what a um people's eating habits are is in a constant state of flux so again it really should be a kind of more cautious um approach to how we want to disseminate nutrition because actually then public health does get itself into a massive disaster because if it then has been pushing out all of these messages for years and it gets proven to be wrong then why should you trust them on anything and i don't think that's i don't think a healthy attitude to public health or any government policy should be inherent distrust um, at all levels but that might be the reaction that many people might draw from from what's happened previously yeah i mean i think i think these uh, public health wars are a very good example of the dangers of evidence-based policy because they really st- it's really about policy-based evidence because they start out from the point of view of we want to control your habits then they come up with some science that uh, fits that um, basic outlook and it's completely arbitrary so yeah, in the 1980s and 90s, they can they can label fat as the problem, and then just as easily flip around and say, "Oh no, carbohydrate is the problem," uh, rather than just saying, having a bit of humility about the the state of knowledge about the, these things and saying, "We what we did think broadly that now we're thinking maybe it's a bit more that, but we don't really know." And when uh, you know every individual is unique in terms of their biology and so how your body's going to react to fat or carbohydrate can't be determined at a national level and can't be determined by a sugar tax or a fat tax or anything else or all these other uh, regulations uh, that are being imposed upon us so uh, so it is good that you know that this kind of draws out the um, the shakiness of the science and 
hopefully removes a bit of authority from these people because they really are a baleful and illiberal influence on our society uh, and only serve to uh, increase people's anxieties about food and about e-cigarettes and whatever uh, that are completely unnecessary if you take any kind of dispassionate look at the evidence. Another thing that's come up in relation to health, and we'll just deal with this one quickly, is uh, the introduction of the ban on legal highs, which obviously now need a new name because they're not legal. Again, this just seems to be another terrible consequence of illiberal policies and and prohibition, that we take a group of substances that we, we know a lot about and we ban those. So people are turning to much more dubious substances with far less of a sort of knowledge about them in a, in a bid to get around the law. This seems to be... A, 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 and now they're banning those as well. It's, uh, it, it would be so much better to, uh, to actually legalise basically all of these products and, 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 and let us enjoy them in a kind of controlled way for those people who do want to enjoy them. Yeah, I, uh, the, that's the weird sort of aspect of what happens when you start trying to do things like ban chemical formulas, which kind of essentially is what kind of regulations of drugs are and most legal highs are kind of attempts to create chemical compounds which actually are just not the illegal formula and of course there's a huge market for that because people are chasing um, the effect of uh, of these drugs so you know that you get drugs which are uh, mimicking um, other ones that become very difficult to to manage um, and you know it, there's actually sort of something really despairing about the the war on drugs where actually you think this should be a kind of really prime you know spot to have a good discussion about the limits of liberalism but there is a kind of political cowardice on this level uh, which is driven by an assertion that uh, the public can't be trusted to actually have um, a a debate on this Um, that actually you always hear from um, kind of politicians um, that actually they themselves are actually understand that there's room for liberalization but you know they could never dare take it to the public because they'll be mauled they never seem to provide too much evidence of that happening actually and what happens is that you then end up having to have policy which is trying to chase after um, almost impossible things to catch and leads to the then you banning all manner of different ridiculous um, substances because it could potentially be um, misused by somebody um, in, in ways that you'd never really thought through. And actually, you know, it, people can you know, often like to kind of characterise introverts as just saying, oh, you're against all kinds of regulation. Well, this is a prime example where I think there's a perfectly sensible role for regulation to be had and a perfectly sensible discussion to have about how we allow certain drugs and the, and the risks and harms that we would deploy it for, which is a, a liberal position. You know, actually, I don't just think you should just allow every kind of dangerous chemical on earth out into the streets to be taken by anyone. I think, But why I would like those decisions to be done is people who actually got a little bit of understanding what these substances do and try and offer us a kind of informed choice about how we could or could not take them if we so wanted. But at the very least have that debate out and actually debate about what it is we're, we're discussing. Because to just talk about kind of drugs in this kind of big headline way does not lead to a very informed debate because there are lots of different things which are illegal drugs or illegal drugs that have lots of different kind of effects and it just ends up in a real mess of a discussion. Yeah, I think I think that the the, the proper regulation for these things is the same as for any other con- consumer product, which is it should say what it contains and contains what it says. Um, and as long as we do that, then I think that the, we can uh, trust people to, to, to use them or... Uh, uh, you know, in, in a relatively sensible manner. Finally, on the uh, uh, there was a little bit of another social media spat this week, particularly around the uh, Labour MP Jess Phillips uh, talking about the the uh, attacks on women online. Um, what, what do you think about that? 
Well, yeah, there's been a, a, a big uh, campaign launch of called uh, Reclaim the Internet, uh, led largely by uh, uh, female Labour MPs, and uh, a particularly noteworthy article by Jess Phillips, MP, who basically said all these people who whinge about the policing of the internet um, using the free speech as an excuse for their libertarianism are actually uh, misusing free speech because we're the real free speech warriors because we want to allow women to speak and have free speech on the internet by silencing the trolls and making sure that we don't allow their women's voices to be drowned out by horrible people. Anyway, um, I, needless to say, hate this argument for a, ra- a range of reasons, which I won't go into all of them, but the, the one thing to note is I'm particularly insulted by the idea that women are the vulnerable group that needs protecting by the like of Jess Phillips et al., who, use, who basically depict women as being uh, in particular need of protection online. It's complete bastardisation and betrayal of the notions of free speech that you say in order to have free speech you've got to silence all the horrible people um, and that to um, typify free speech as being nice speech, particularly nice to women, particularly nice to female MPs apparently. Uh, that inoffensive speech is free speech and anyone who disagrees with that are trolls who should be policed and silenced off the web. So... Um, Of course, if you want to consider this uh, in more detail, I'd like to recommend a book called I Find That Offensive, which I wrote, um, because I've got a whole section on that very issue. But I really genuinely think these people are a menace to freedom and are insulting to women. And uh, any woman uh, worth their salts will not allow their name to be taken in vain by these people who consider and present themselves as uh, warriors on behalf of women. Yeah, and if you want to take up her arguments in the book, as long as you've read it, whether you want to compliment it or uh, uh, throw criticism and intemperate uh, attacks uh, on it, uh, her Twitter is at Fox underscore Claire. Um, and the only requirement is that you actually have to have read the book and thought about it. <laughs> here, here. Um, one last thing is a date for your diaries. Uh, for those of you who are anywhere near London are... On the 16th of June, Debating Matters is going to be holding a schools debate on the motion the UK should leave the EU. So we've got some sparky uh, six-formers arguing this case out in a wide-ranging way, which uh, I think will probably be more enlightening than many of the uh, sort of set pieces that have been uh, happening in this referendum campaign so far, and probably a lot more enlightening than the TV debates that are coming up where David Cameron is not debating anybody, it turns out, um, which I think uh, shows his... um, distrust of the electorate and his uh, on the, the quality of his arguments anyway debating matters uh, it's happening at uh, the university of east london at stratford on two sorry on thursday the 16th of june from 6 30 check out the debating matters website debatingmatters.com if that sounds of interest to you apparently there's free booze as well which is a, always a jolly good thing and on that note uh, thank you claire thank you david and uh, thank you for listening to this podcast if you'd like to find out more about our podcasts and uh, subscribe to them uh, visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast Thank you.